do. Save that, Josh. Welcome to Signal Fire Radio. Our guest today is Peter McGuire, big wave surfer, author, historian, all-around good dude. Got an amazing show lined up for you. Do not go anywhere. Signal Fire Radio is coming right up. Signal Fire Radio. So Welcome back to another episode of Signal Fire Radio, a show about ambitious leadership for ambitious leaders where each and every day we explore with deep curiosity what makes, well, I guess, Matt, what makes ambitious leaders ambitious leaders. And we have found, I think, through this journey, Evan, my other stellar friend and co-host, that everybody kind of has all these same little things in common. They feed their minds, they strengthen their bodies, they enrich their spirits, and they grow their tribes. Mm -hmm. How are you? I'm good. Yeah? Yeah. I've yeah. got all those things. Yes, you do. And you're a civilian now, too. I'm a civilian. Which is super awesome. That's the best part. Yep. 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 You uh, Are you still liking it? Do you want to go back to the Army yet? Not one bit. Not yet? <laughs> no. Not yet? Matthew, how are you today? Fantastic. You have, you have um, spoken and uh, socialized with our guest more than either of us have. Mm-hmm. Encapsulate the, the renaissance man that is Peter McGuire. So if you can. Well, I, I gotta I gotta preface that with I've only hung out with him like once or twice with mutual friends. Okay, uh, Ren and Ashley, mm-hmm. um, and Bruce, uh, Bruce Mock, <clears throat> and firearms. Oh yeah, and fire. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we were shooting. Uh, I brought one of my rifles, and we were going nuts on the fantail of Ashley and Ren's old. What was that? A big Chris Craft. Yeah. Yeah. Big gas engine. Like a fancy like fifty sixty styles boat, Ooh. but it was like middle of the winter time, and we were cruising like. On the river, the Cape Fear, and we were just—it <laughs> was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, what can't Peter do? Yeah, what can't Peter do? <laughs> well, dude, in, in math, math. <laughs> and taxes, <laughs> pay somebody for that. Yeah, well, it, 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 tell us a little bit about yourself, Peter. The folks that are new to the audience. Where are you? Like, yeah, where are you? Yeah, from? we start us in the very beginning. Um, I'm originally from Southern California and grew up there. Um, was a bit of a degenerate and surfer and uh, involved in the underground economy and didn't <laughs> plan on going to college or anything. Moved to Australia to surf. And, um, and then um, reached terminal velocity with that, came back to California within about three days, realized I could never live there again, and then went east to college went to extreme left-wing kind of liberal arts school, Bard College for undergraduate, did very well, uh, was accepted into Columbia's PhD program in in history, wrote my dissertation on the Nuremberg trials um, and the law and theory of war under Brigadier General Telford Taylor, who was chief prosecutor at Nuremberg. And then my first job out of graduate school was to go to Cambodia to work as a war crimes investigator at a pri- around a prison called Tool Slang that roughly 20,000 people went in. Somewhere around 20 survived. Everybody was photographed and interrogated. Some colleagues of mine had found the original negatives. The Khmer Rouge was still a, a powerful force at that time. So I never thought there would be legal accountability. So we were basically documenting and preserving. And then I was finding the survivors. And then it led to me finding the guards, executioners, 
um, and getting them all to talk over about a 10-year period. What was that like, getting getting them to trust you and open up and, like, tell you the real it's deal? Uh, it, it's interesting, you know, because then when the War on Terror began, I crossed paths with every— at that time in Cambodia, you could buy SAM-2 missiles, you could buy kilos of heroin, you could buy Russian MI helicopters, the most powerful guy— in the region was a, a opium warlord named Theng Bun Ma who had his own MI helicopters with Russian pilots that he would lend to the to whatever side he wanted to win in a in an internal coup, and so it was it was it was real freedom. So it was real freedom, and so I pretty much worked alone. I had a trusted fixer named Soxin, but I got a lot more with sugar than I did with salt. And then a lot of colleagues of mine, when the war on terror began, went on to work in um, interrogations in southern Thailand, the first black sites and stuff like that. And I could see that we were very much on the wrong track in terms of interrogations. I never, I, I coerced and lightly threatened, but never to the extent of, of some of that stuff. And it wasn't, uh, I just... I, you know how to get results. That wasn't the way to get results. So that was disappointing to me when we went that down that road. Um, but in my case, uh, yeah, it was trust, you know, and bribery and that type of stuff. And and one real kind of moment of satori that I had was with a guy named Ham Hoy, who they called the butcher, who basically was accused of executing 5,000 people with an iron bar to the back of the neck. They wouldn't shoot him. They wouldn't, you know, didn't want to waste the bullet. So they'd have him kneel on a ditch, whack him in the back of the neck. And so, you know, I was expecting to meet evil incarnate with Hoy, you know, and he was this little Cambodian bog peasant farmer. And um, and I started talking to him. How, how'd you get in the military? He said, well, Khmer Rouge came to my village and you either go or you die. So my first, you know, they took me to training, I ran away. They took me back, I ran away a second time. Third time, they put me to the front. In my first battle, I got shot in the head, I got shot a couple more times, and they were like, Comrade Hoy, you're gonna die, lead the charge. And so he got shot a bunch more times, he survived that. Then in the invasion of Phnom Penh, he got a grenade dropped on his head. And I said, wow, were you afraid you were going to die? He goes, I wasn't afraid of that. I was afraid the Vietnamese were going to eat my liver in front of me. Mm. So he crawled under a house, survived that. And so then, you know, he's under a house, bleeding, covered in shrapnel, everything for, I don't know how long, but pretty long. Like this is, you know, no medevacs and that type of stuff. And so, so he said, and then at that point they said, oh, Comrade Hoy, you're such a valiant warrior. We have a special job for you. We're sending you to S21 prison. So then he starts as the lowest level guard. And then there were something like 1,200 people who worked at that prison over the three years it was open. 500 of them wound up as prisoners. You would break an ax and they'd say, oh, you're CIA. You'd scream at night in a dream and they'd say, oh, you're KGB. Like this is how mad it was. And so all his superiors kept getting killed. So he moved up the chain of command to head guard and suddenly, uh, you know, he's driving the trucks to the killing field. So I said, Hoy, you know, how did it feel about, you know, classic like dipshit <laughs> Westerner question, how did it feel? Did it? Right. And he just goes, it was death either way. Yeah. And that's the reality of it, you mm -hmm. know, and the worst guy was the one who took the pictures. And this guy was like 
one of the great hustlers I've ever met in my life. And he um, was one of the, the real, like, Hitler youth of the Khmer Rouge, sent to China for training. And this guy was smart. And the first time I met him, he was trying to get me to go to the U.S. Embassy to get him uh, a meeting because he had, like, 2,000 soldiers ready to capture Pol Pot. And, uh, and that's when the Khmer Rouge was having an internal civil war about 97. And, uh, and that's when Pol Pot was ultimately captured. So you begin to see the many shades of gray. You begin to see um, that the, the truth at a university seminar room is not really the truth in the field. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, it was my real education. You know, the, the stuff at the university. And then meanwhile, at, in Cambridge, New York City, Berkeley and two other, you know, big cities, you know, we've got international law and the, and the ICCs ready to reinstate, you know, global justice. And, and so there's this dissonance between the world that I'm living in and the world that I'm retreating to occasionally. And it, and it just gets crazier and crazier. And, and I kind of, uh, have a long-term sort of uh, conflict what, with what I call the human rights industry, because it is an industry. And if you don't toe the line, you know, you're very much an apostate. And, um, and that's a role that I've relished for many years. What, is that, what does that <laughs> industry look like, in, in your opinion? Uh, it, you know, it's, it's basically... Um, it reminds me almost of like a socialist front organ, like the Internationale or something at a certain point. After 9-11, everything went pear-shaped for them. But at that moment, in the wake of the Cold War, it was delusional, some of the things people were saying. Like, all we need is the ICC. And, you know, and I'd say, well, okay, who's going to capture the Security Council powers? Like, when you want to indict a Chinese leader, how's that? how many divisions do you have? They say, oh, that's just that military stuff, that, that silly, like the people that they held in such contempt were supposed to do the heavy lifting for them, as we see today a similar scenario in Chicago, where the police that Mayor Lightfoot held in such great contempt in the summer of 2020, suddenly now they're supposed to do their jobs mm. and report. No, you don't get it both ways. Mm. And and we're seeing a kind of societal breakdown on many levels. We've undergone what I would call a cultural revolution, a corporate-sponsored cultural revolution in 2020 and 21. And it doesn't surprise me. I mean, we killed God. We killed capitalism. We killed political ideology. So... You know, nature abhors a vacuum. Something's going to fill it. And now we have these kind of anti-oppositional ideologies, whether it's social justice or Black Lives Matters. On the face of it, you can oppose those things. Who's against social justice? Who's against fairness for blacks? Nobody in their right mind. But then when you get into the minutiae, when you get into the weeds of it, it's uh, the devil's in the details, as it always is. Mm-hmm. Where do you see, what's the end conclusion of that then? Of this uh, moment of, we're yeah, in? Yeah, yeah. Counter-revolution. Okay. Yeah, I think we're beginning to see it already. And, 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 and I'm, I'm so cynical when it comes to politics, I kind of look at it like college football or something. And I tell my extremely conservative friends, like, look, 
you should still be doing end zone dances from 2016. Like that defeat of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton was the one of the greatest moments of political schadenfreude, taking, you know, joy in someone else's misery in your political life. So the fact that, that you know, Trump got over the tips of his skis um, in, you know, his first term, he that was fairly predictable. But now the pendulum's swinging back hard the other way because of the utter incompetence of the Biden administration and, and things like, you know, the border. Let's just take that as a prominent example. NAFTA really began the process of, of, of um, the erosion of the nation state. The sovereign nation state is the thing that has guided us since the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 that came at the end of the Thirty Years' War, a religious war that I think killed like 20 million from disease and starvation. So people went, hmm, religion isn't that great a way to organize a society. Let's go with this nation-state thing. It's certainly imperfect, but it has been the paradigm since, you know, for, for hundreds of years. So now we're going to say borders don't matter. Citizenship doesn't matter. This is not a lighthearted decision. This isn't something you kind of just do in the middle of the night and go, hey, look over there. Hey, no, that's not really how, you know, if you want to do it, do it. But explain to us how you're going to do it and, and be aware of the unanticipated side effects and all the, all the things that come with it. And so we've we've entered into an incredibly dishonest period in history and we have a body politic that's used to it and so i i i think we're going to see some just whipsaw swinging um and i think we're going to swing really hard to the right and the left is not going to like the rules and the way that they've played imposed on them you can't have it both ways mm -hmm. and i think you know the 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 moment, the like high water moment, and I may be wrong, but I'll predict this, is this Dave Chappelle thing. Mm. Oh, yeah. Because what's a corporation about? Despite making money. Presumably. Exactly. Yeah. No, making money. <laughs> That's all I expect of a corporation. I don't care if they buy green paper towels. I don't, it'd be nice, all that stuff. But it isn't what it is. Let's all be honest. If they don't, their bottom line doesn't make it, they don't make it. And so the Chappelle thing and canceling Chappelle, that all got in the way of the middle of the bottom line. That show has been incredibly popular. The louder people scream, the more people are going to watch. Once I heard people screaming, I got to watch it. I think Dave Chappelle's really funny. Yeah. And when I watched it, there's a kind of cognitive dissonance that we're seeing all the time where what we're told we're going to see is not, in fact, what we see. And the more that cognitive dissonance grows the more problem you have holding up the narrative. The, one of the great books I've ever read, and you only need to know this sentence, and you can lie and say you've read it too, <laughs> is um, Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he argues that before every scientific revolution, whether it's the world is flat, turning to the world is round, um, and I'm not very good at science, so I'll stick with that analogy, uh, the greatest pushback for the collapse of the existing model or paradigm is at the moment before it's collapsed, mm. the second before it's collapsed. That's when you burn the people that say the world is round. And, and I think 
you know, we're seeing some incredible pushback right now. And, it, you know, whether it's talking about COVID, whether it's, you know, you can't talk about that. And that I'm a First Amendment absolutist in that anything less is pure sophistry. I'm for Marxists to be able to say whatever they want. I'm for far right people to say whatever they want because it's the only consistent intellectual position. And the rest of it is sophistry. Is is a, you're playing word games. The the beginning of the word games begin with hate speech laws, and I witnessed that on university campuses, speech codes, mm. and I res, I was against that in the late '80s, and it's just been this kind of mission creep into every aspect. Things that were once relegated to dingy, you know. Uh, academic uh, literary theory departments are now mainstream. Mm. Um, but again, it's kind of a road to nowhere because much of it comes from postmodernism, postmodernism. There are no facts. There are only interpretations. Right. So you affirm nothing at the end of the day. So, you know, again, we've entered this void. And I think um, we're going to see my other, next prediction is we're going to see a coalition of whites, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians that are middle-class people with middle-class values that want to pay their bills, want to have health insurance, that want their kids to go to schools where they're not going to have to worry about getting shot, like my two kids at New Hanover. You know, I mean, they're five fights in one week, shooting in the first week, you know, and uh, they're not freaked out about it. But at the same time, that shouldn't be part of the, you know, and what's the, you know, the, the really interesting thing is because the, the depths and roots of the contradictions are so deep, we can't really even touch the problem. So we say, oh, we've got a great solution, clear backpacks. Mm. Yeah, we're going to have the students wear clear backpacks and that's going to stop shooting. I mean, you can't make it up. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I hate to stop you right here. We're going to take a super fast sure. break, and then we're going to come right back because I have two questions that popped into my head, Evan. I can see your wheels turning too as well. So. I, it's, I, yeah, no, just okay. want to keep listening. Okay, all. all right. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to take a really quick break. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere with Peter McGuire uh, right here on Signal Fire Radio. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Rob with Signal Fire. As you may know from listening to Signal Fire, I have multiple businesses this all came out of me wanting to be a better marketer. And the biggest problem that most people have with creating content is they just don't have the time. And that's why we created our Signal Fire suite of services. If you are a small business leader, medium-sized, large-sized CEO, it doesn't matter. You have something to say and you have value to bring to the world. We take all of the hard stuff out. Editing, recording, creation, posting, all of it. We can do all of it for you right here at Signal Fire. If you are interested, get in touch with the best business development person in the entire world, my partner, Matt Mylot. His email is matt at signalfire.media. That's matt at signalfire.media. And let us show you how we can make you a Signal Fire for your business in your community. Hey, welcome back to Signal Fire Radio. Fantastic conversation going with our guest, Peter McGuire, author of Tie Stick, a uh, bunch of books that you've written. 
Um, I didn't have the whole list in front of me, but I I did read Ty's Sick, and I thought it was very. <laughs> that's that was my vacation book. My was other it? One's uh, yeah, Law and War. That's that's a real happy book. That's and then the there's deep stuff. then there's uh, Slit Your Wrists, uh, Facing Death in Cambodia. That's <laughs> one, you know, that but that was come with Prozac. Saturday morning yeah. reading. Saturday, yeah. Well, yeah, just the light stuff. Yeah. 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 But that was your. I mean, you lived that for how many years were you there? Did you say in Cambodia? On and off for about ten or twelve. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but a few months a year. Now, yeah. do you speak Cambodian? Chamrup soy saksabai. No, yeah. No, I can say like <laughs> not a lick. You yeah. know, give me some beer. That right. chicken's cold. Like, yeah. not really. What, and no. and just to go back, like into your story, what were the time frames that you were there? Like, what what first year? This was uh, post- end of ninety three? Okay, because to me that was the most outstanding, egregious um, destruction of the never again promise. Right. Mm-hmm genocide committed, two out of 10 million people killed, then the perpetrators were rewarded by the U.S., by the U.N., by China. Um, the Chinese still lie about the extent to their sponsorship and involvement for the, for the Cambodian genocide. I took great pleasure in exposing evidence of their complicity and sponsorship of the Khmer Rouge genocide. Um, I'm not a big fan of China. I really don't trust almost anything that the state media says. I don't fear them the way many do today. I think their greatest threat is the one that's been there since the time of the emperors, which is internal peasant rebellion. Hmm. So, How, Do you think that'll happen in our lifetime? Uh, at the rate... At the rate things are moving, because I watched the Belt and Vi- I mean Belt and Road Initiative, mm-hmm. um, and I'm watching these roads to nowhere. I'm watching skyscrapers go up in Bangkok and Phnom Penh, and I'm thinking like, who's going to buy all this crap? And it didn't make any sense to me. So I think we really have no idea of the extent to how bad it is. Sources have told me in internal Chinese cities, people are starting to stockpile heating fuel, gas, things like that. And these are always harbingers. I mean, look at the, you know, the great leap forward of the Cultural Revolution and and the official account of it. Or, you know, Mao today swam up the Yangtze and broke the world record of Mark Spitz. I mean, that's how delusional some of the stuff is. And so... Um, yeah, my kids love that because I homeschooled them for four years. Like Mao breaking the world record for the 20 minutes swim up the Yangtze. And, and, and was it, that a real story? It was a real time, story. Time for current affairs, kids. Yeah, Come yeah, on, yeah, sit down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The propaganda machine has been chugging for oh, yeah. centuries. <laughs> so we really don't know. And, and again, I mean, the Vietnamese fought them. I wouldn't call it a standstill, but they definitely did not roll over the Vietnamese in 79 when they fought. Um, so they've got the good gear. They've got a lot of soldiers. Do they have the will? Mm. You know, and that's what it comes down to in military affairs. What's their policy objective? They're suffering from the same thing every empire does, which is imperial overstretch. From Africa to Southeast Asia. That's what got us. That's what got the British. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not so clear cut. Um, I think they may have to do something dramatic 
to get out of the out of the jam they put themselves in. That, that was going to be my question in, in perfect segue. Um, the fall of empires. I, I read uh, an Kennedy. interesting take regarding like the similarities between the fall of the Roman Empire to where we are positioned currently in the United States of America. Do you see any similarities Absolutely. there? Absolutely. I mean, it's Paul Kennedy wrote the great book on it called The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. And he says, you know, it's it's imperial overstretch. The empire gets spread too wide and too thin. And the, the really guiding ideology of the post-9-11 period was re, from the paper rebuilding America's defenses from the project of, of New American Century. Fifteen signatories of it went in to serve in the Bush administration. And basically they said America must be prepared to fight uh, two big wars in two different theaters at all times, irrespective of the financial cost. And we tried, and it didn't work. And we didn't have coherent policy objectives, and that's Clausewitz 101. Freedom isn't a coherent policy objective. And, and that was the thing to me that was very heartbreaking to watch was from the captain on down, I saw great committed people. But once you got above captain or really, to me, the big break was lieutenant colonel. Like, who gets made a colonel? Like, the, I met some incredible lieutenant colonels that never got above lieutenant colonel because they were too honest. Hmm. And so I saw a real failure of civilian leadership um, as we were talking, you know, you were talking about leadership. And... And uh, real moral cowardice and uh, inability and unwillingness to um, to take responsibility when things go sideways, and they do go sideways in in combat, in policy, and you know there's too many floating variables. You're going to make mistakes, and you have to take ownership of your mistakes, um, or you lose the respect of those you lead. And I, and I don't, you know, the idea that this. Um, you know, the Marine who criticizes Afghanistan the day after the bombing is the one who gets punished, mm-hmm. yet that that debacle that, you know, I wrote a piece saying that, you know, the vi victus woe to the conquered, this wasn't Saigon. This was Phnom Penh, April 17, 1975, when the Khmer Rouge w- marched into town. This was a much more significant debacle um, and symbolically probably, you know, and that's the thing, like, you know, what they call optics today. This is very important because everything travels so quickly and you can't put the genie back in the bottle Mm. once it's out. Is it, it, where do people go for truth these days? It's really hard um, because it's really hard. Um, I I know many members of the elite press, some are friends and, uh, and some aren't, but um, but you know it's uh, that's why I've started writing on Substack because I can say whatever I want, and and I was I've written for most of the publications out there from Herald Tribune, New York Review of Books, um, and and a lot of newspapers and stuff. But getting an op-ed published was getting near impossible, and you only get 250 bucks. I think it's like 350 for the New York Times. So I'm going like, what's the point of this? So then I saw, you know, different people, Matt Taibbi and others going to Substack. And, um, and I saw you have total freedom. And so I pretty much write a, 
um, a column a week on my Substack page called Sour Milk, and um, and I say whatever I want. And well, why sour milk? Because I am sour milk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a 56 year old white man, man. My 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 expiration dates, you know, right there on the carton, you know, and Canceled. so yeah. No, I don't. I, you can't cancel me, you know. Like no way. And uh, and and ultimately, I'm not going to succumb to emotional blackmail, right? That's what shocks me. Like that. I think William McNeil, the science reporter at the New York Times, he succumbed. Oh, you know, they start apologizing and crawling. Doesn't work. Like, come on, hate. You're welcome to hate me, but I don't make a lot of intellectual sense in that. I was writing about America's what I called our original sort of profound anomaly, which is we're the nation of freedom, you know, built on Indian land with slave labor. I wrote about that in 2000, and nobody patted me on the head for yeah. it. The same people that are woker than thou now wouldn't lift a finger to help me mm -hmm. at that time. So. I'm all over the ideological map and, you know, and I get e emails from military friends. Hey, man, you're you shouldn't criticize torture policy because you're feeding intel to the enemy and stuff. And I'm like, no, we should be a strong enough society to where we can tolerate criticism and we can point out flaws and fix them. And if we get into this binary mindset, then we're done because this country is too... There's just too many different people from too many different places with too many religions and ideologies for there ever to be a state program. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to be tolerant. And and I like diversity. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's it's interesting. And it's and it's so deep. And like, you know, the the Montyards in North Carolina, I mean, and um, who I played a small role in their evacuation uh, here are best allies in the Vietnam War, you know, and and. Uh, They've been incredible citizens, you know, the Vietnamese, incredible citizens. I mean, we have immigrant groups that have come to the United States and done an amazing job and really added to the strength of our society. And, and the idea that anybody who staggers across the border should suddenly be entitled to citizenship, I don't agree. There should be baselines. And the people that really work to get it, it's not fair to them. And, uh, you know, and so... Again, I mean, when, when Obama's agreeing with me, you know, you know that the train's gone off the rails. And Sleepy Joe, one foot on the banana peel, one foot in the grave. I, you know, honestly, <laughs> if that's not a political cartoon right now, yeah. it should be. No, it's my wife's line. Um, <laughs> but really, you know, like I've told my liberal friends, I said, you ought to make Jen Psaki president. Like, forget about Kamala. She ain't going to get elected. Mm -hmm. But Jen Psaki, you know, she shows up every day. She can keep a straight face and say almost anything. Yeah, right. And uh, I mean, that's a skill. It reminds me a little bit of the Khmer Rouge at times. <laughs> but um, but she's the best you guys got. Like she's a redhead. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Peppermint Patty. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned uh, kind of touched on like these societal trends. You talked about Chappelle. Uh, you know, you could never get canceled. Nobody could ever cancel Dave Chappelle because he's honest. Um, he's uncancelable, um, but we get these we get these movements, mob mentality type movements. How do individual people? Because it, it, it starts easy. it starts with the person, right? I have to decide that I'm going to look across the other table to people and accept them for whatever they think, feel, believe, look, who they sleep with. 
But I feel like that has gone away, particularly with one side of the political aisle. Sure. Um, how do we reform that? Because that's got to start at, at a grassroots level. I think, I think level. it's going to be ugly in that I think it's going to swing back the other way in the kind of ain't no fun when the rabbit got the gun kind of deal where it's going to go very conservative and the conservatives will take joy in imposing the same strictures on the liberals and that type. There will be that kind of pushing and shoving. And then my hope, and maybe I'm uh, too optimistic, is that um, from that rubble some grown-ups will emerge. We'll get rid of these 80-year-old leaders that can barely string two sentences together I mean, you know, the idea that Pelosi and Biden, you know, I feel sorry for them, frankly. I do too. You know, yeah. I watch the speeches and it's like watching a nervous undergraduate give an oral report. Mm -hmm. and, I, and you're going like, oh, God, yeah. you know, yeah. and so, um, but how does someone navigate it? It's not easy. You know, I don't teach anymore. I love teaching, but I don't teach anymore. I don't, uh, I had to make a decision and it wasn't, I was under no pressure about saying anything. It was about... The fact that we don't we don't pay teachers what they deserve to be paid, like half of the you know something thirty forty percent are part timers, no benefits, no nothing. I call them academic Tom Joes. I know people who work at you know teach five classes between UNCW and Cape Fear. But what do you have? You have this big bloated layer of middle management and these people who wear suits and drive around in golf carts. Are they? But, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. We took yeah. Matt away from the yeah. university. Yeah. I know, so I know. And, like, yeah. and he's free. And so, and I Google the salaries because it's a public university. Top 25 are all bureaucrats. They are neither teachers nor scholars. And this is no good. And we see it in education now. Oh, you got a master's in education from Podunk Tech. And now you're going to come tell me, who spent 30 years in the classroom as a and I was a college trustee, so I know where the bodies are buried. I know, you know, you're not going to tell me about education. Mm -hmm. And I'm a strict adherent to the Socratic method, which is very unpopular today. Break it down and build it back up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like you're, you're Marines, you know how it is. Like day one, you're going to be in that collective misery boat and it's going to totally suck. And then on the last day, you get your grade and they go, Professor McGuire, I go, just call me Peter, man. It's over. Like, that was all a show. Like, you get a letter of recommendation, you get whatever you want. Yeah. Like, yeah. frankly, I don't really even care. That's exactly like, yeah. what it was like with the drill yeah. instructors, right? Yeah. If you ran into them in the field or yeah. something, you'd yeah, be like, it's oh. all done. Yeah. 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 You'd freeze up. You'd be like, no, we're good. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, day one, go in with three by five cards, hand them out, take one, pass them down. And I'm like, oh, fold it in half. They're like, fold it in half. Oh, arts and crafts. I'm like, write your name on it. I can't be bothered to remember your name. <laughs> and then they're like, oh. And then Smith, why are you here? Oh, uh, well, I signed up because I knew. I was like, no, tell me something, Smith. Tell them sports score, stock tips, talk, Smith. And they're just like, <laughs> you know, and like, I'll get sent to tolerance camp for that now, you know? Oh, I love it. Uh, we're going to take our last real quick uh, break here on Signal Fire Radio. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Peter McGuire. My name is Ginny Morse, and I live in Cary, North Carolina. I was diagnosed uh, in 1985 with multiple sclerosis. One of the things that happen, happens to you is the neuropathy pain. And that is actually what happens is damage from MS. I had tried four or five drugs, 
to alleviate these issues. And I had to take doses that were so high I couldn't get out of bed. So that's when I tried the medical cannabis and discovered that it, it just, it stopped it. I will turn 69 in October of this year. And I have lived with MS for 36 years. I've had cancer, blood cancer, which is not curable and is progressive since 2017. So when public officials tell me that I need to wait, I need to be more patient, I need to be more understanding, I'm running out of time. Let's think about the people that aren't gonna survive, that are gonna to continue to suffer in ways that could be alleviated by the passage of Senate Bill 711. Visit ncfamiliesformedicalcannabis.com. Signal Fire Radio. Welcome to our third and final segment of Signal Fire Radio with our guest Peter McGuire. Matt, Evan, and I were like, this is the this is the I think most intellectual conversation we've had on this show. Oh, big time. Yeah? At minimum. Yeah? Yeah. I'm encouraged by it though. So yeah. I'm, I'm very encouraged it by it. Sounds like a lot of like Peter, what you're you have seen for so many years is what's what's like wrong, what's uh, you know bad in the world comes from maybe thin-skinnedness. How do you think, like as a society, yeah, mm-hmm. like how do you think as a society we build that up? Does it start from the bottom or does it start from like good examples at the top? Like, what what can we do to not be so offended by everything? I, that's a great question. Um, I don't really know, and I don't really care. <laughs> you know, honestly, I don't really care. Because, again, what's their enforcement mechanism? Emotional blackmail. You're going to make me feel bad about myself, and, oh, you know, okay. like Fear of other people's opinions. Yeah, FOPO. Yeah, get in line. Get in line. You know, I had the Khmer Rouge want to blow me up. I got a lot of prominent enemies, and so you're not the first. You won't be the last. And... I turn everything off at five and I make dinner and I go to bed and I get up at four and I do the same thing every day, seven days a week. And I think that's a big part of it is that, you know, you to get good at anything, you got to do it and you got to do it with discipline and dedication. And it's not going to come easy and success is not going to take me 10 years to get my first book published. It was probably 12 publishers. And I was right. But it, my message was so jarring, hmm. and it was that international law is not worth the paper it's written on. And it came at the worst possible time to ever put that message out there. And so, but I didn't quit, and I didn't get the academic jobs I should have, and I, and I didn't whine about it. I just got on with it, and I went, okay, what can I do that these people can't do? Oh, I can go in the field and do stuff that requires risk, because these are risk-averse people. And so, you know, and then I and then I enjoyed it. And then it just kind of took on a life of its own and that wasn't necessarily good. And then um, I had an offer to go to Afghanistan very early on. And oh, I um, and I sorry about that. And then uh, my wife got pregnant and and that was the end of the crazy train. And so that was good. I got off the crazy train because a lot of my friends didn't and they're they'll never be even close to normal again. You know, PTSD, 
affects journalists, affects mm -hmm. human rights, frontline people the same way it does soldiers. Mm -hmm, sure. I mean, when you're looking into the abyss all the time, right. you know, it, it takes a bite out of you. Absolutely. And so that's that's the thing. And so that thing you mentioned about there's risk averse people and, and less risk averse people. Is that natural or is that learned? Is it inherent? No, I think that um, fear is totally normal. And anybody says they're not afraid, you know, like Hicks and Gracie says, is either crazy or stupid. And there's some stupid people out there, a lot of stupid people, actually. But um, <laughs> a lot of that's driven by drugs or, you know, whether it's steroids or meth or whatever. But, um, but my thing was always, I was always very curious. And curiosity to me was a more powerful force than fear. And, and I would be afraid, but I would also want to know. And, I would, and, and so curiosity was always something very, very powerful. And I think you're born that way. Mm. And then I come from a long line of weirdos. I mean, my, my great-grandfather was a judge at Nuremberg. My grandfather ran Operation Magic Carpet and, and flew something 40,000, 60,000 Yemenites, concentration camp survivors into Israel. Ben Gurion called him the Irish Moses. And, um, you know, he's basically a mercenary pilot in the Middle East uh, immediately after World War II. The great risks. And... Uh, so there's something in our DNA right. that that we do stuff like that. And my grandfather, when I said, oh, I'm going to Cambodia, he goes, good. Don't be careful. Careful kills. Hmm. <laughs> Are you teaching that to your – you said you have two sons. Is yeah. that is, you see that being passed down now one more generation in, in what yeah. what I would consider to be a highly sanitized no, societal moment I, that we're I, in? Uh, I homeschooled them for almost five years out of sheer disgust with both private and public education. So they – I would say have the equivalent of an undergraduate degree. We began at the invention of fire and taught history all the way up to the Vietnam War. You know, Genghis Khan, you got to know the Mongols. Yeah. You got to know the Romans. You got to know Islam, Christianity, and Judaism and the conflict in the Middle East to understand the Middle East. So they're kind of wise beyond their years. Uh, the older one... Um, is started at Cape Fear at 16 and is studying welding and a lot of engineering stuff. The younger ones, uh, more artistic. Um, and what are their names? Uh, Seaborn and Joe. Seaborn and Joe. Yeah. God bless, dude. <laughs> I love yeah. it. It just keeps coming. Total hippie name and then Joe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they're, um, you know, they're both great at what they do, and we encourage them to be great. And, you know, one's, you know, the young one's a ballet dancer and an unbelievable freestyle skateboarder. The other one just got his blue belt from Hicks and Gracie and trains at John Salter's terrifying academy here in Wilmington that I'm way too old to, to set foot yeah, on those some, masks. Yeah, you're going to pop a collarbone right now. There's some monsters yeah. at that gym. Yeah, and, and he's, you know, he's really good and, uh, and getting better. And I've never pushed him for the sake of me or my ego or anything. Um, and he's, they've, you know, done it his whole life and, and likes it. And, but it's not that fun. I mean, martial arts and having some gross sweaty guy and a stinky gee on top of you. It ain't that fun. That's, that's Matt's day. dream day. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's fun. <laughs> I do too. I love doing <laughs> jujitsu. Always have. Have we arrived at this moment because of education in the United States of America, the education system? Yeah, it's totally broken down. I mean, it's, you know, the thing is, we talk about critical race theory and this and that. I said, what's it matter when no one can read? Hmm. What does it matter, the books they are supposedly reading, when they're not reading? I mean, my students, 
at UNCW, I'd give them like a 15-page surfer's journal article, and they would complain that I had to, it was too much reading. And when I taught at Columbia 20 years ago, I gave them three to 500 pages a week of reading, and they did it. And that's the erosion of standards, mm. you know. And it's the, the, yeah. the instant gratification that everybody wants—the exactly. magic pill, the switch, the, the, and the watch the fifteen-second yeah. video, and I Steve learn jobs. everything right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah and the screen, mm-hmm. you know. And I like As books. I'm checking my phone. And I like <laughs> and I like paper. And yeah. I, you know, I like books. And I read every night. And you know, Amazon sent us the thing. Oh, to get the new thing, you're going to need a new device, a new TV. And I said, let's not have a TV. How's that sound? Like, I'm getting less and less enamored with TV. It just pisses me off. Mm. So I'll go back to the analog world very happily. <laughs> I think, I think uh, like, a lot of people can benefit from that. Yeah. I, think, I think we as a society can benefit from that because we're just so inundated with crap Well, and let's go faster and faster and faster. Where? Right. <laughs> Why? Those roads to nowhere, like exactly. the Khmer Rouge again. <laughs> exactly. Like, what are we rushing through mm. life for? What what's at the end, you know? And and I think if we took more joy in the process and people could could see that that's that's you know, that's what Nietzsche called the you know, the gay science, you know, that that the great philosopher, the great artist, he was enjoying he had a big smile on his face. He was enjoying every day. He wasn't what, what um Nietzsche called, I think it was the uh the farmer of the spirit, and that's the guy in the university. Oh, this is so hard. Oh, my work is so serious. No, it wasn't like that at all. You know, the truly great, he's singing from the top of a mountain, mm. you know, and, and I think that's what should be celebrated, you know. How do we get to that at scale? Uh, not quickly, yeah. you know, and again, there are a, a, a similar cultural revolution, but... Um, I think it's going to be a painful birthing process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you think? Do you think? You know, you you've obviously seem to study the breadth of human history. Um, you know, we see peri- periods where we go through great enlightenments sure. and you know, renaissance and art and deep thinking and philosophy. Are we due for another one of those? Well, I'll leave you with this. There are many different de- different definitions of freedom. There's the lion's freedom, and there's the lamb's freedom. The lamb's freedom is being free of the fear of being eaten by the lion. But the lion's freedom involves risk. The lion breaks his leg, he gets killed. That doesn't matter who you are, biggest, baddest male lion. So to live that freedom, you have to accept the fact that there's risk involved. And we have this risk-averse society that wants everything, and it wants it in writing and contract before Mm. it even engages in risk. And I... I don't share that view, and I re- lead a risky life. And sometimes I don't have health insurance, and sometimes I don't know, you know, and I could choose stability, but in order to choose stability, I would then have to make some sacrifices that would not make me feel good about myself. I could be a lot more successful in Hollywood, but I would have to make some compromises mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel good about. And and I... Um, and I'm too old now. I'm 56. You know, I'm sour milk. <laughs> Not at all. I love it. That is coming full circle right there. Hey, uh, the Lion's Freedom. Name of the episode, okay, Josh? I like that. I'm gonna read into that a little bit more. <laughs> um, 
Peter, thank you so much for coming. Oh no, on. anytime. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, that was uh, a fantastic conversation. I'm going to be reliving it for the next probably yeah, several we got a hours. Free, we got a free lecture. I'm going to put it. I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to put it all down for a minute, and then I'm going to get on the group thread, and I'm going to text you guys in like. An no, hour, I might hour start teaching again in a pub. I think that's why better. not. Like you know what? Right? I may just go to a pub at the steps and, of the Acropolis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. About like Socrates just, again. Yeah. You know? and because like my best students are older, like are the people that are, have real intellectual curiosity. Um, typically are older and uh, and I have more fun with them you know than the kids and it's it's uh, yeah so we'll see <laughs> I'm all for it yeah I, if, if you're going to be lecturing at a pub and I can have a cold crispy boy exactly. and listen to you talk uh, unfiltered for two hours oh wait I, I get something the third one yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just entering into the third act keep them coming yeah. uh, I love it I love it Peter thank you so oh, no. very much for coming uh, Matthew anything I'm just reveling in this whole good last job, hour. good guest, yeah. buddy. Yeah, good guest. You get you get the uh, NWO championship belt for the day for oh, for wow. best for best guest. Evan, anything? Uh yeah, I just ready to already ready to like listen and ruminate on this one. I gotta more. go brush up on my Nietzsche. It's been a minute. It's been <laughs> Don't a minute. Don't go too far with Nietzsche. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. You go, you yeah, go yeah. deep. A little Nietzsche goes a long way. <laughs> there you go, Matt. I got friends who have driven, been driven crazy by Nietzsche. Yeah. And thought they were the Ubermensch. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a fine line. You just see them in their bedroom like rocking yeah. Yeah. forward. Nietzsche, Nietzsche, Nietzsche. They pulled all their hair out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love it. All right, that's gonna do it for this episode of Signal Fire Radio. Until next time, go out there and feed your mind strengthen your body, enrich your spirit, and grow your tribe, and go be a signal fire in your community. We love you, and we'll talk to you next Monday. Catch new episodes weekly, and be sure to follow us on social media. Subscribe now and become a signal fire in your community.